pray together. Father, we are so thankful that we have reason to be thankful, Lord, regardless of circumstance. And we've said this already. We've heard this from the lips of one of your great saints. Lord, we just pray that we would be thankful. And Lord, as we turn now to your word, that you would help us remove from our minds distraction. Father, would you guard error from my lips? Would what we hear be what you desire that we hear? So that we might be encouraged by truth, exhorted by what is reality, not by what we perceive as reality, but rather what is, in fact, reality, as it is revealed in your word. Father, would you be glorified now as we turn to your word and we continue our time of worship by studying it together. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, this morning we arrive at the final chapter of James's letter. And so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you open them with me to James chapter 5? And just in light of the time, I, I am aware, if you look at your watches and you're concerned, we're only examining the first 11 verses of chapter 5. We're not going to press on. Debbie asked me last night, she leaves this coming week and was excited to see how your pastor would manage to get from verse 1 through verse 20 in a, in a short space of time. Well, we're not going to do that. We're, we're going to save for next week the conclusion of a journey that we began, if you were with us, back in January, walking verse by verse through this letter written by our Lord's brother and bondservant of God, James, to the twelve tribes or the church dispersed abroad in order that our faith might work. So that's what true faith does, doesn't it? It demonstrates its authenticity through action. And so I, I invite you now, follow along as I read our text. James 5, beginning with verse 1. And our author continues writing to this end. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in these last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Be patient then, brother, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And may God bless the public reading of His Word. Now, if you were with us last week, then you likely felt the familiarity of James's opening attention getter. Now, listen, and as, as sharp and imperatival phrased as this is, this is identical to the one that we examined in chapter 4 and verse 13. Only here, James is giving this, hey you, to rich people. 
to rich people rather than those who are misguided or have misguided notions regarding the future and their control over it. And in both instances, both this one today in chapter 5 as well as the one in chapter 4, James is attempting to draw attention to or to get the attention of a select group. And in light of this shared expression, one would think that the exhortation to follow would either build on the previous or at least in some way be related, right? And yet we're going to see together that this isn't the case today. Here in chapter 5, James turns his attention to a completely different group, a different group of people, and he issues a completely different warning. In the verses that we're going to study, James begins by issuing a warning to the rich. A warning to the rich. Now listen, you rich people. And, and before, before any of us start fidgeting, looking around, uneasily preparing our patent responses, well, I'm not rich, not me, so this surely, the, who's James talking to here? This couldn't be me, right? I'm not rich. Well, let's answer that question, right? Who are the rich? And the answer is, not us. Not us, Emmanuel, but not for the reason that we may think. Because unless I'm badly mistaken, most of us would read this designation and conclude that James isn't speaking to me because I'm not what? Rich, right? I'm not rich. I don't qualify as rich. So clearly this warning is for somebody else, but... Who's rich, right? What does it mean to be rich? You know, a number of years ago, I listened to a great sermon series regarding wealth in which the pastor concluded that anyone who has more than they need is rich. And he then went on to qualify some of the terms that he'd employed in his definition, such as more and need. And he pointed out that he had, surprisingly, never met a rich person because everyone he ever asked denied their affluence because they measured wealth against those who always had what? More. You guys are good. More. And isn't this true? Isn't this true, church? When I think about my life today as compared to my life when Melinda and I first got married, when we graduated from college and I got my first job, I look back and I have to almost laugh at our poverty. We have fond memories of eating Stouffer's and ramen noodles and how a trip to Subway was a splurge. Five dollar sub. Whoo! We were breaking the bank. If you were to ask me then, were I rich? I'd have said absolutely not. Even before my employers informed me at the first end of my first year of working that I needed a pay increase, not because of job performance, because they were worried about the legal ramifications of having paid me for a year less than minimum wage. I, I had no idea. No idea. Now, if you'd asked me then, were I rich? Or how much money would have qualified me as being rich. I would have likely pointed to someone making a salary probably like I'm making now. And yet I don't feel affluent as I zip around Salisbury in my little gray sled, my 97 Toyota Corolla. No, I, I look at the man sitting at the light next to me who's in the Mercedes. That man's rich, right? That man's rich. But you know, if we were to ask that person if they were rich, I can guarantee the response would be, no. It's the guy over here beside me in a Maserati. That man's rich. And I saw one of those this past week, just so you know. That's Memorial Day weekend in Salisbury, right? And the point is, church, that we tend to measure wealth comparatively, don't we? By comparing what we have with others. And by this standard, we will never be rich. And yet God has given us more than we need. Therefore, we are rich. Every single one of us. If you, if you have more than one change of clothes... If you have a roof over your head, food to eat, and throw away because either you didn't like it or you were full. If you have a car, a television, or a phone, then you have more, more than you need and therefore are rich. And so despite our, our discomfort at being rich, and some of us are probably even now squirming under this label, 
James, take a deep breath, isn't writing to us. Rather, I believe he's addressing non-Christians because as we're going to see in just a moment, he doesn't oppose the rich on the basis of their material possessions, but rather on the basis of the evil associated with their wealth. In addition, here James makes no reference to rich people as being family, which he does three times in verses 7 through 11 as he addresses those who are suffering. And so, whereas last week we saw James speak to a mixed group, meaning his group, his target audience was composed of both believers and unbelievers, those in the church and the world. In verses that we're going to see later, verses 7 through 11, he speaks exclusively to the church today. But here, I believe that this, this reference to the rich refers to non-Christians, namely unbelieving Jewish landowners in communities where James's original audience would have lived. Now, we might begin to wonder at this point, well, why would James address wealthy unbelievers in a letter that he's writing to the church? It's a fair question. And one scholar argues that this was a rhetorical device that James is employing here. It was known as an apostrophe. It's a, it was a turning away from his original audience to address some other group. And so James was well aware that his words would likely not reach the main audience that he has here, these unbelievers. But he does this. He, does this. he addresses this group for the benefit of his Christian readers. So James's primary concern here was likely to dissuade hesitant Christians from falling into a foolish attitude of envy, of envy towards the powers and privileges which wealth seemed to confer on those who possessed it. And so, church, I believe that we, we need to heed James's warning here. Take this warning to heart because it concerns the judgment promised. The judgment promised. Weep and wail, James warns here, because of the misery that's coming upon you. And the two terms that James used here, weep and and wail were words that were often used by the prophets in the Old Testament to describe the reaction of the wicked on the day of the Lord. For example, in Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 6, the prophet warns Babylon, wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. And then again, a couple chapters later, chapter 15, verse 3, this time against Moab, the prophet proclaims, in streets they wear sackcloth. On the roofs and in the public squares, they all wail, prostrate with weeping. Again, Amos, the shepherd of Tekoa, warned unrepentant Israel this time. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Now, just as an interesting semantic side, that term wail in both the original language of the New Testament is, as it is in English was onomatopoeic. It's a great word. It means that that word meant or sounded just like it, that which it described. And further, this term was used exclusively in the Old Testament in the context of judgment. And so what I believe that James is describing here isn't some, some earthly or some, some temporal suffering. No, what he's describing here is the divine condemnation, the eternal judgment that God will mete out on the last day. This is, as one commentator, I believe, describes it, James is looking with foresight, and he sees the dark hurricane cloud of the day of the Lord, which is about to strike these whom he's warning, the rich. So church, this is a grave, grave warning when we consider the truth that God does not lie or change his mind. The, the very thing in which God's children take comfort, namely God's immutability, becomes the grounds for his enemies' absolute horror as their misery is assured. And church, yet I fear that today in our culture, in our nation, there are many who sit in pews 
around our, our country who are inside the church, but then also those who are outside who, who completely disregard this warning, this concept of God. In their mind, that's those who are in the church to start with. God is gracious. God is loving and, and kind. And in the end, love will win out and, and will all be spared. And what a warning such as James extends for us here serves to do is to simply encourage right living in the moment. But in the end, God will relent and he, he won't do what he's promised to do. And, and in fact, we'll all be saved. Therefore, we have no urgency in our evangelism or a holy fear of God and his righteous wrath. And for those who are outside the church, that is for the, the unbeliever of the world, if they even acknowledge God, then in their conception of God, he simply exists to serve humankind. Therefore, he waits at our beck and call. He desires nothing more than that we all just get along, that we just love each other. And friends, I hope that you can see the danger of such a heretical view of God as it not only misrepresents God as he's revealed himself to be, but it also undermines the gospel. It makes Christ's ultimate sacrifice of no account. For, for what did Christ suffer for if in the end all our sin is going to be overlooked? Why would God the Father cause his son to endure such unimaginable pain and suffering if all along he'd simply planned to let everybody off the hook? Can you see how dangerous such beliefs are? And by contrast, how incredible God's unchanging character makes the gospel. Because if judgment is assured, then so is God's promised love and grace. Only it comes on God's terms, not ours. So James warns the world, the rich, of God's judgment promised. I believe he then portrays this judgment. So we see the judgment portrayed in verses 2 and 3. And James describes how the rich's wealth has rotted. Moths have eaten their clothes and their silver and gold are corroded. And so James here takes three of the principal measures of wealth at the time and he demonstrates their instability, their temporality, and their uncertainty. The wealth to which James here refers first was likely grain. And if you recall in Jesus' parable, which he told in Luke 12, the rich fool stored up for himself grain only to be later judged for his selfishness. And I believe here James's point is that on the judgment day, that final day when God will return, all our grain will be as rotted, meaning it will, be, or will serve absolutely no purpose in sustaining our life's quality or quantity. Your, your grain just won't do it. And similarly, clothes will be eaten by moths. In Matthew 6, this may sound familiar, as Jesus warned us of storing up treasures where moth and rust will destroy. And again, James's point is that the temporary or the temporal serves only the temporal. And on the day of judgment, they will be worthless. And in fact, he goes on regarding silver and gold and notes that their savings, all of our savings, will in fact serve as evidence of our greed, testifying to the temporal affections of the heart. And so churches, as men and women who live in a land of abundance, where, where we are constantly encouraged by billboards down 13 to save so that we can all retire and live out our last days in comfort, where advertisements urge us to wise investing so that you can own your dreams, you can wear the latest and greatest and never want for anything. We have to be so careful not to allow our grain, figuratively speaking, or our clothes or our gold and silver to be what we're banking on for eternity. Because James makes clear when judgment comes, those things are worthless. If we put our hope in treasures, then their corrosion, in James's words, will testify against us and will eat our flesh like fire. So, how do we avoid the riches condemnation then. James has described the judgment promised. He's 
presented the judgment as it's portrayed in the Scriptures. Now I believe He offers us the paths to judgment, or the judgment's paths. And I believe He provides us with three. Three paths to this promised judgment. The oppression, number one, of poor laborers. The oppression of poor laborers. In verse 4, James there declares, Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your field are crying out against you. And so here, clearly, James is condemning economic oppression. And simultaneously, he's encouraging those oppressed. Why? Because the cries, he says, of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. And that, that title that James used there for God, and which is translated as Lord Almighty, if you have an NIV, is rendered as Lord of hosts, if you have the ESV. And the King James says, Lord of Sabbath. And this is a distinctly Hebrew name for God. And it conveyed to the Hebrew people this idea of God as the Lord of the armies of heaven. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was the Septuagint, used phrases like the Lord of powers or the Lord of omnipotence to try and capture the sense of God's awesomeness as it's portrayed here, conveyed by this term. And to this point, James makes it clear that God already knows about the rich's failure to pay. Meaning there's no, there's no uncertainty regarding the justice that's coming. It's a given. And so church, now this morning for us, we may not own farms, at least I don't. You may not employ harvesters, so to speak. I don't think it's a stretch to apply James's warning today to our financial treatment of any with whom we engage in business. Be it a tip after we've eaten dinner or somebody who maybe cuts our grass or puts a new roof on our home church. Our dealings with others must not reflect those that James addresses here because they define the ungodly, the rich, as James has called them. Our faith works and therefore cannot be consistent with this. So James warns one path to the promised judgment is oppressing the laborer. The second, I believe, he provides is the self-indulgence of the rich. Verse 5, James says, You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Now, before any of us who've ever gone to a spa, you've had a massage, you've treated yourself to a weekend away in a nice hotel with fancy food, before anybody starts to freak out, James is describing here a lifestyle, not an experience. And the word that James uses here for luxury is one Jesus himself used in Luke 16, 19 to describe, in his words, a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury, that phrase, every day. Every day. And so I believe that James here isn't, he isn't speaking about an experience. He's describing the everyday. Further, the word that he uses here for self-indulgence is one that reflects the conduct that Jesus attributed to the prodigal son, who, if you remember that story, spent all of his inheritance on wild living. So what I believe James is warning against here, what he's describing here, is this reckless or self-serving lifestyle in which all pursuits are aimed at personal pleasure. So I guess you could qualify the one being described so here as a hedonist. Now, I doubt that any of us live as Hugh Hefner did. At least I, I pray that none of us do. But I think we'd be wise, again, to hear James's warning, particularly, church, in light of the fact that we live in the land of extravagance the Golden Corral, the all-you-can-eat buffet, Black Fridays, Mondays, Thursdays, Cyber Tuesdays. I mean, I mean we, we have all, all kinds of opportunities to, to love ourselves and love ourselves well, don't we? For, for the ungodly, their judgment awaits, according to James. And so, church, may we be wise and, and may our faith lead us to generosity as opposed to greed because our faith works. So James provides us two pathways Economic oppression, the second self-indulgence, which leads to judgment. And the third, violence against the righteous. 
James writes, you have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. So here it seems as James is pointing back to words that he gave us in chapter 2 and verse 6, where there he warns his readers about showing favoritism, and he reminds them, hasn't God shown or chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? But you've insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? And so it seems for James, the, the rich in his day were using their means to manipulate the system. This sounds similar to our world today, doesn't it? They were actually guilty of committing murder. And in other cases, they were guilty of murder in the sense that they were depriving their victims of what they needed for living. And these victims, James describes as the innocent, if you have an NIV. The ESV renders this word as righteous. And so I think if you take these two together, the innocent and the righteous, what, what is being communicated by James here is a reference to believers. Because throughout the New Testament, Jesus is explicitly referenced as the righteous one. Matthew 27, 19, and in Luke 23, 47, Acts 3, 14, as well as 1 John 2, 1, all speak of Christ as the righteous one. And therefore, I believe this reference to the righteous here references those who followed the righteous one, who is Christ. And again, friends, I, we need to hear and to heed James's warning as it reflects our dealings with one another. Why? Because it's unlikely that any of us here this morning would murder someone else. But we are all tempted, I believe, at times to deprive our Christian brothers and sisters of things that do contribute to living. We're all prone to withhold that which it is in our power to give when we don't believe that the one who is without is worthy of our generosity. We're all tempted to, to judge one another's circumstances and to expect them to work it out rather than to share the burden like we see evidenced in the church in, in Jerusalem, in Acts, where everything was held in common. Now, I don't think that we ought to, to live in a commune, share all that we have and forego this idea of personal possessions. But I do believe, as James's warning makes clear here, that wealth is closely tied to judgment. And that's not that money or, or possessions are in and of themselves sinful, but the love of such things is. And it's the root of all evil, according to the Scriptures, which is why the rich, according to James, face such frightening judgment. And church, any time that we allow ourselves to personalize our possessions to the point that they empower us, and give us a sense of identity, then we have to repent because our life is in Christ. He is our all. And if He isn't, and our stuff means more, then we've never come to know Him. Because according to Jesus in Luke 14, 33, to the crowds who followed Him, He said, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything cannot be my disciple. So are you a disciple of Christ this morning? Have you given up all hope of saving yourself? Have you pulled the plug on your personal salvation payment plan of impressing God with your latest kicks, your cool, cool jeans and an offshore account? Have you realized that there is nothing that you possess that God needs? Nothing. James issues a warning here to the rich in hopes that those who hear it would recognize their need of the gospel. He also hopes to warn the church in doing so against lusting after the allure of the world. So James warns the rich, but then he encourages the poor in spirit. That's believers. He encourages them to have patience in suffering. To have patience in suffering. Would you look back with me now to verse 7 there in our text. James writes, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. You notice how James has just warned the rich by reference to this same day. The Lord's coming, and now he encourages the brothers, the believers, by directing their attention to the exact same event. You know, 
if you recall earlier, we commented on how God's unchanging nature is both the grounds of his people's confidence into eternity, while at the same time serving as the source of his enemy's deepest fear. And, and in the same way, I believe for James, the Lord's return is both a day to be longed for, as it will bring about an end to all suffering, while for the rich, it promises to be a day of unimaginable horror. On this day, the day of the Lord, all the injustice suffered by the brothers and sisters, believers, men and women who follow Jesus, Christians, all of the injustice suffered at the hands of the world will be over. And what awaits those whose faith has worked and who persevered under trial, who found joy in the midst of suffering, will be the crown of life that God has promised those who love Him. And that's why James urges his readers to be patient in suffering, because the Lord is coming. And then to illustrate this point here in our text, James turns again to agriculture. Weird. We've already seen James describe how fig trees can't produce olives, grapevines can't bear figs. He speaks of peacemakers sowing in peace and raising a harvest of righteousness. And now James directs his readers to a farmer who waits for the Lord, he says, or for the land to yield its valuable crop and, and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. Now, I've never been, but I, I understand that the Palestinian climate is an arid one. And so the rains that James was referencing here were essential to a successful crop. So any delay in these rains arrival could have devastation Devastating effects upon the farmers. And so they planted in faith, and then they waited patiently. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first read that sentence of verse 7, not being a farmer, I envisioned someone sitting quietly in a chair on their porch, rocking chairs, sort of waiting, as you can imagine, in a love story of someone coming home. You know, but that's, that's the picture that came to my mind. But when you consider the, 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 the illustration that James is giving us here, I believe it changes everything. It changes this picture entirely. Because a farmer doesn't sit quietly waiting for rain to fall. I don't believe farmers sit unperturbed as their soil dries daily and their plants wilt in the sun. No, I, I believe the patience pictured by a farmer is a waiting rain, is an agonizing, longing, pressure-timed passing of a person who's hoping against hope that they will have a positive outcome. And so this is the patience that I believe James is urging for us to have. And he urges us to demonstrate this patience in two ways. The first way that we're called to evidence this enduring or this patience in the midst of suffering is through standing firm. By standing firm, literally translated in, the, in our scriptures, is, is to make firm your hearts. And it communicates this decision to act, to, to strengthen one's inner life. One commentator describes this as conveying the idea of strengthening and supporting something so that it will stand and be immovable. And interestingly enough, this is the exact same phrase that was used by the Apostle Paul to describe a work that can only be accomplished by God. God himself, writing to the church in Thessalonica in chapter 3, verse 13, the first time, Paul says, may the Lord make your love increase. May he strengthen your hearts, that phrase, so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Same point of reference, the return, the day of judgment. And so what I believe that James is calling for here isn't something, friends, that we can accomplish just simply by setting our minds to it or fixing our thoughts upon it. Rather, this comes through resting in and relying wholly upon God. And so church, I want to challenge us all, particularly those of us who are here this morning who've been suffering physically, emotionally, spiritually. Stand firm. We have a number in our church family who've been through the ringer lately. 
Josh was one, as you saw, he had to leave earlier. Miss Ann and others, we mentioned as we prayed for them. But stand firm in the Lord because he's coming. He's nearer today. Our king is nearer today than he was yesterday. So stand firm. And in this standing, recognize that we don't stand in our own strength. And there's an insidious lie that's perpetrated within Christian circles that God will never lay on you more than you can stand. And I know a number within our faith family for whom this is a bunch of garbage. Because they felt that they couldn't stand on their own for a time. They felt that they were overwhelmed, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, to the point of breaking. However, God is their strength. As we saw from Miss Anne, God is her strength. And therefore, she continues to stand. And as she does so, it serves as a testimony, an example to us all of God's great grace and His power in His people, which brings Him glory. James urges us to evidence our patience by standing firm. And then second, by not grumbling. Don't grumble against each other. We talked about this with the kids, James warns, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. And it might seem strange that of James's two exhortations regarding patience, one relates to the tongue. However, we've already seen together how James has a concern for this tool. He mentioned it in chapter 3. And if you think that you think about it in light of this illustration, I, I think it makes perfect sense. In James's day, a, a farmer could do nothing but wait on the rains after his seeds were in the ground. And so his work was done, so to speak. So to speak was all the work that he had to do. With nothing to occupy his mind but worry and nothing to busy his hands with, the farmer's tongue would have likely been his busiest tool. And one that James has told us earlier is uncontrollable. And we all know this reality, don't we? As you're forced to wait on things, the best way to wait is by busyness, isn't it? Activity. The worst way to be patient is to sit around and dwell on the fact that that which you're waiting on has not yet arrived. And under such circumstances, the tongue becomes a genuine tool for griping and grumbling rather than glorifying. And to this point, James offers us as his readers the examples of the prophets who he says, in the face of suffering, spoke in the name of the Lord, rather than complaining. And then James concludes by reminding us as his readers of the blessing that awaits those who persevere. And he points us to Job, which is odd. Because if you think about Job, he's not a great example of one who suffered in silence, is he? However, he did stand firm, did he not, in the face of incredible hardship. He never relinquished his faith in the Lord. And in the end, as James's point is, Job was restored. God blessed him abundantly. Why? As James says, because the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. I want to close by us considering two questions in light of this dual emphasis that we see James has had this morning as he's targeting an audience. Two, two questions in light of those to whom James was writing. And the first question is this. For those who would have been warned as rich, do you know the Lord? Are you trusting in Christ for your eternity? Or are you depending upon a God who you hope when you arrive, though clearly he has promised to judge us based upon our faith in Christ, you're hoping he'll overlook those things and evaluate your life based upon your acquisition of possessions or your fulfillment of power and position. We've all heard the gospel this morning that our power our possessions are of absolutely no value in God's eyes. He has no need of what we have. We can't offer Him anything. But He's provided us with everything through faith in Jesus. Do you believe it? Do you believe in Jesus this morning? 
And then the second question, as it fits for those who follow Jesus, are you standing firm without grumbling? Because friends, we can accomplish neither of these two things in our own strength. Because we can only believe by God's grace through faith. And we can only stand and not grumble by God's grace and in His power. So I want us to pray as we close. And I want to pray for those in light of these two questions. For you who, who may be considered rich in the way in which James employs this term. That God would graciously draw you to Himself this morning. So that you might repent. And by His grace, believe. Repent of your sin and believe in Jesus. And for those of us who follow Christ this morning. That He would give us the strength to continue. We, we have found ourselves facing a great deal of physical, specific, and emotional heartache in this last year. We've said goodbye to dear friends. We've, we've, we've seen men and women go through, through sickness and illness and be recovered and then sick again. And we have all manner of, of things that are suffering. God calls for us to be firm and not to grumble. So I want to pray that God would give us his strength so that we might, as James says, await this glorious coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me to that end? Father, you are good. And Lord, if there is any this morning who, who, who do not know you, Father, who are hoping against hope, wishfully thinking that come the end, that they might encounter a God who sees their sin and their good deeds and bad deeds and just overlooks it all, just lovingly lets them in. Lord, this is not the picture that we see portrayed in the scriptures. This is a conception that our world would desire to be true. But we can't find evidence for it in your word. Father, would you, by your grace, have opened eyes to see the beauty of who you truly are. The God who is there this morning. And would you draw these men and women to yourself by your grace so that they might repent, acknowledge that they've not been good, and there's nothing that they could do that would merit them anything but your judgment, but that because you are good, you judged us and sent your Son to die in our place. He then fulfilled the covenant that you had made with us. So now through our belief in Jesus, we have everything you promised life eternal. This day that you have said is a day that you're coming back. We can look forward to it with excitement. Lord, I pray that you would, by your grace, open someone's heart's eyes to this. And Father, for us who are your children, may we be reminded to stand firm. May we guard what we say. Lord, might we recognize that we can't stand in our own strength. And as soon as we begin to attempt to do so, we fail. God, give us your strength. Might we be there for one another. Might we be one, Lord, as you are one. And we pray these things for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.